This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. I grew up a Christian, um, but neither of my parents or my husband's parents really grew up in the church. And so it became kind of a a moral choice for them initially and kind of blossomed into this 90s subculture evangelicalism (laughs) that many of us are now working through. This is Ashley Hales. Ashley's a mom, a church planner's wife, a scholar, and a writer. Her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, is about her experience moving from an urban context back home to a suburban one, and trying to find the same sense of vibrancy, beauty, and, well, holiness in the ordinary spaces she found herself. I've always loved the church um, in its various guises, and yeah, yeah it's become, a, it's continued to be a touchstone. Yeah, I wonder about and you know, there's there's been so much that's happened recently with, you know, the whole ex-evangelical movement and yeah. or people just walking away from the faith and a lot yeah. of prominent figures have done this recently. And I wonder how much how much of that is shaped by the culture of the 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 90s that we grew up in, right? Because yeah. it was I think everybody was well, I shouldn't say everybody. So many so many of my friends that have walked away grew up in these evangelical mega churches, big youth groups, yeah, lots of hype, lots of spectacle. And it and, you know, it just makes me wonder is this have people just burned out? Have they mm-hmm. or has it just not lived up to their sort of emotional expectations because of what they experienced as mm-hmm. you know, as kids? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think know, what, what I mean, part of it is we've been given kind of a Christianity in a subcultural form that was not robust enough to deal with real life. And, you know, I think there's a sense in which I think, you know, for all the, the culture, right, has shifted a ton in the last 30 years. And so to, to assume that Christianity means you just vote for the right people or make the right moral choices. And therefore life will always be up and to the right seems naive at this point Um, Mm -hmm. in time and just much more, I mean, it's not like reality is any more complex, but maybe we're just actually coming to terms with it um, in Christian circles. And so, yeah, I have lots of friends who've walked away from their faith or left ministry, and it's heartbreaking because I think I've just even come to realize in the last few years and writing my book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, that you know this is the story I want my life to be bent around, is the story of the gospel. And that's painful. But yeah. <laughs> There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, my guest is Ashley Hales. We'll talk about the contrasts of cities and suburbs, about her multi-layered sense of vocation, and about the power of place. 
It's a great conversation, so stay with me. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, sure. So you you lived kind of all over. You were in Scotland. You were in Salt Lake City. Yep. Seems seems from you know from my reading of your book, you really loved cities. Yeah. Did not expect yourself to be back in in the suburbs. So yeah. Tell me kind of how you how you found yourself there and what was the process that led you to to writing the book. Yeah. You know, I think. At that point, my husband had been in college ministry. He pastored um, a Reformed University Fellowship with our denomination, um, a group in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah, and we loved it. And we had a walkable neighborhood, and we had a big, huge park, and it kind of fit all of these lovely cultural idols that I didn't even know I had. Like, um, oh, mm. we're being so like local and artisanal, and you know, it was like an organic batch of coffee. Our existence and. Um, and to realize that 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 was our calling, and yet, like as he got increasingly just tired of the same sort of conversations about you know, mm-hmm. and seeing kind of the revolving door of campus ministry, that um, he longed to be a little bit more rooted. And given that we also had for small children, um, you know, we weren't going to likely be moving to like Manhattan <laughs> with, <laughs> with a family of six. Um, and so I think, so it made sense for us to come back to Orange County. We had roots here. Our parents are still here. Um, we know several pastors here. Um, we know the culture. And so that kind of led as we knocked on all the doors to a move back home. And then, you know, as, as we got there, it usually I'm slow to transition well to a place and it took me like two years to like be okay i live in salt lake city now um i think it took me about three or four years to actually move back home which i was expecting it would be a lot quicker and easier since i knew it and we had the safety net of our family but for me as i've gotten older too as i have learned that that slow transition really is kind of reckoning with the soul of a place and um, when i moved back home it kind of brought all those like junior high, like holding your lunch tray kind of feelings back, you know, so much of who we are is formed in childhood. And then to kind of like come back and like relive high school a little bit felt anticlimactic and horrible and really, you know, wrecked me in the sense that I thought I was better than my place. Um, and to learn how to repent and, and work through it has been a, hmm. a journey. That deserved a book, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's an interesting phrase. You felt you felt better than your place. You felt like you'd transcended it by yep. by being in the city and Yeah. And I think unfortunately we have like narrative amongst people in ministry too that like this city is more worthy, like a more mm-hmm. worthy calling um than a small town or Unless you're like farming like Wendell Berry, probably the country and definitely the suburbs because they're soulless and full of track homes and people who only care about money and comfort. <laughs> um, how true have you found those cliches to be living there? Well, I think it's a little true. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, that's a really easy way to write people off. Um, right. 
just like all of us, there's lots going underneath the surface. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt that people in cities are fond of comfort and money right. in their right. own ways. Yeah. Yep. Maybe just status more, too. So how long have you been there now? Four years. Tell me what you've what you've learned, what you've experienced. Walk me through a little. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the journey for me, uh, not only in writing the book, but living living my book, is to to hold in one hand, you know, what the gospel holds out as the good life um, and to see my own place um, and what it holds out as the good life and to try to find the connections between the two and both ways in which I am complicit in the idols of my place and ways that I believe that God's made me to speak, you know, in some ways, well, at least the reviewers have said prophetically, which is kind of a really big word to use, but, um, into those cracks and crevices of longing and belonging that, you know, when our idols run out that we, that we notice. Hmm. Yeah. Longing and belonging. Um, those are, those are big themes. Yes. I think, um, the sense of paying attention to a place mm -hmm. that you have, we tend to think of suburban life as being very, like you said, track homes and, and generic and, I remember my parents lived for a few years in Plano, Texas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which is literally one strip mall <laughs> after another. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, like, there is texture there. I mean, I mean, yeah. there are people there, so the, the texture does reveal itself if you pay enough attention to it. Mm -hmm. And it, it seemed like that was something that you that you did really well. Yes, thank you. you I, uncover. Yeah, I feel like that. Ever since becoming a mom, I think I have been forced to find the beauty and the meaning um, underneath what looks like chaos and ordinary <laughs> mundane life. Um, I mean, I think that's always in my nature, but it was much more poetic and fun to be able to, like, you know, study abroad in Oxford and see it in the architecture while I, you know, compose poetry in my head. It's much harder <laughs> to do that when you're commuting or walking your kids to school uh, or changing diapers. Right, right. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. How do you think about your vocation? Because you're you're a scholar, you're a writer, you're a mom, you're a church planner's wife. Like, how do you That's how do you navigate question. that? I don't even know. I think um, I think I have begun to articulate it in terms of I love to tell the story of the gospel where I am. Um, mm -hmm. I love to translate that for people. Um, so whether I'm, you know, speaking or writing or 
hanging out with my kids and helping out with homework or volunteering in their class. Um, I think I very, I used to think of vocation really monolithically. Um, and I think when I got my PhD, I taught for a few years, we had lots of babies and lots of moves and I got really angry, uh, at God and the world mm -hmm. and probably my husband, uh, cause he got to go to work <laughs> and, um, it just became, became really untenable for the life of our family for me to have this kind of academic career plus the economy fell apart um mm. and and so i began to say you know in what ways has god gifted me to think deeply to find the meaning um in the mundane to connect the dots between ideas um and people's normal practical realities and so I feel like a little bit is I get to tell those stories, uh, whether they're mine or my own or uh, mm -hmm. my kids. And that has helped lessen some of the, the natural angst. Mm -hmm. The angst of, describe the angst for me. Yeah, I, you know, I was speaking with um, a woman friend from our church actually this morning, and she has an infant and she's just started back to work in her high powered attorney job. And, and we were, we were just talking about the challenges of, of all of the things and that you can't do all of the things. And, and for me, some of that, some of that angst is, is imagining that of all these other lives that I could have lived and mm -hmm. how do I, how do I live my given life, mm -hmm. uh, that God has given to me rather than, um, imagining or being nostalgic for what could have been or what was mm -hmm. or what could be. Um, and that's a very hard, spiritual practice yeah no that's that's well put i you know we were talking before the, the recording about what i do and um my last few years have been this really interesting kind of vocational run where i went from being a pastor went to start a nonprofit. um i i wanted to start a faith and culture nonprofit mm -hmm. uh in the middle of the trump campaign in the middle of the election season and I, I said a number of things about Donald Trump that I thought made perfectly reasonable sense yep. from an mm -hmm. evangelical Christian perspective, mm -hmm. um, which did not sit well at all with my potential donors. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went from trying to, I went from that, um, failing miserably at, at raising money right. and, <laughs> uh, and pivoting to starting this, you know, podcasting company where we work with various organizations and various nonprofits and um it's it's exciting work at times at times it's it's taxing at yeah. times i'm finding myself scratching my head and going you know how did i end up here yes yeah. but that idea of a <laughs> of a given life mm -hmm. um I, I love that phrase because mm -hmm. it is like no this is like it or not <laughs> right <laughs> this is where god's put you right and, yeah. And, you know, if our lives are to kind of bend around the story of the gospel, then it doesn't mean that what we do is inconsequential, but um, it does mean that that can't, you know, fulfill all of these longings, right, of, of our heart that, that what, yeah, whether you're doing your podcasting, um, whether you're doing your parenting, that it's all it's all of a piece. It reminds me of Charles Taylor talks about this this concept of bundled identity, mm -hmm. um, where he you know he says you know five hundred years ago, you your identity came to you bundled. You were 
you were the son of a baker, it meant you were going to be a baker. Right. You know, if you're, you were born German, Catholic, you likely would have an arranged marriage. You know, all of those sort of questions of identity were yeah. answered for you. Yeah. But, you know, in, in modernity, all that's sort of come unraveled mm -hmm. where you literally get to make all of those decisions. Right. And it comes with it comes with a, a certain amount of anxiety that everyone experiences. Right. And that reminds me of, I don't know, it was some study done. I, I think I referenced it in my book, but how um, like all of these kids, right, when they put a playground fence around are able to play. But if like you're in this totally exposed area and there's a playground but you know there's a crazy busy street and stuff that children will actually be less safe because you know they're they're not able to play they're kind of huddled together um rather than when you have when you have some delineation right in a fence and some safety that um that actually allows for creativity whereas you know mm -hmm. if we can create our own everything all of the time we're actually probably less creative and less vocationally aware yeah, yeah, because I mean, it just produces so much anxiety right. to have the pressure of all those right. those questions and um, create the perfect life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things I most appreciate in Ashley's work is a sense of rootedness that comes from something bigger than most of our modern visions of the good life. A longing for beauty beyond the veneer that can happen in either pristine neighborhoods or pristine images of ourselves that we carefully curate online. This is a challenge and a temptation for both believers and unbelievers. She writes, there's also a particularly Christian version of the self-actualization narrative. It's found in hearing how the salvation story revolved around me and God's wonderful plan for my life. Later she writes, God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but blessedly, that is not the point. Further in the book, she says, the good news of the gospel is not that God will bestow the pixie dust of shalom over your life or your circumstances. Shalom isn't about your feelings about God. The good news is that God himself will be your shalom in every place, in every nation, in every culture. So writing, how, how much has writing been a part of your life? Yeah. Well, I, I tried to create some um, stories in, you know, spiral bound notebooks when I was a kid and those just, nope, fell flat. And then um, I was definitely drawn to poetry and I wrote a lot of poetry in my teenage years. Probably m most creative types try their hand at poetry. And even right. though I, I kind of throw that phase under the bus a little bit, I think, um, I feel like yeah, there's, there's a lot in me that is very much a poet. And so I'm trying to own that. Um, and then I think it was my creative writing class in college where my professor said something like, you know, we tried our hand at a bit of everything and we did some critiques and he said, you know, make sure that you contact me when you want your job as a critic. So mm. I think I, I learned that, you know what, my fiction is kind of, a little bit meh, and poetry feels a little bit too teenagey and so hey I guess I'm good at writing about writing um, and so that kind of was another thing that propelled me I think into academia uh, hmm. and it really wasn't until I had my fourth child and felt like I was drowning in 
children and um, (laughs) what was all the details that I'm not naturally good at to make a household run that I began to write creatively again. And it was really, it turned out that I really like it. Yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive because you'd think, you know, with, with four kids, where's the time for, right. For that. How did you, you know, how did you find the time? How did you make the time? Yeah. I think initially I did one of these like online write every day for the month of October things. Um, uh-huh. and so I would just stay up and blog. My husband like bought me a domain name, I think for that first Christmas, <laughs> like, um, like, Hey, you know, if you want to keep doing this, that's great. Um, and so that became the thing. And then, you know, as that progressed and I made friends and relationships and joined a writer's guild, it moved on to a, a few writing conferences and connection with some editors. And then to write the book, it was usually early mornings because okay. my youngest was in preschool, but for only a few hours a week. So that became the thing, which was felt horrible and Ugh, who wants to wake up when it's dark? Um, but it right. became, especially like if you could not actually get any good writing in, <laughs> you just could be all junk. But I think uh, those times actually looking back and maybe it's just the nostalgia, like when you have a baby and you're like, oh, everything was lovely, you know, after the fact. But I do feel like it, it allowed me to really process a lot of stuff with Jesus in the early morning, dark hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm an early morning writer myself. Mm-hmm. So I find 10, 10.30 a.m., uh, I'm worthless with, right. with words yep. after that. Yep. I don't know I don't know if it's just the battery's used up or what, but yep. I, I can't do it. Um, you know, it's interesting. My, my wife and I had a, a really great mentor who, when I was in ministry and was kind of in a in a burnout season in ministry, we were, we were meeting with him regularly. He was a counselor. And... We had real young kids at the time, too. I think our youngest was, was about two. And we refer to that period of time as baby jail. <laughs> I um, love it. Because you're, you're, you're just always kind of trapped. Mm-hmm. But his, <laughs> even in, in reckoning with what my kind of burnout was going through, he was really pushing in, into her life mm-hmm. and saying, you've got to have what's, you, what's yours. What's your creative outlet? What's your identity beyond the mom yeah. or the church planner's wife or whatever, like not to diminish either of those roles, you know, right. those certainly matter, but having a sense of vocation that went beyond, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a caretaker of my husband. I'm a caretaker of my kids. Yeah. There was this need for her to have, well, what's, what's mine? What's my ex- self-expression was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, w- I wonder if that's, does that resonate with oh, kind yeah. of your experience as a yeah. writer? And I think, um, until I kind of stumbled into writing and speaking, um, I think there was just a lot of pent up frustration um, and anger hmm. uh, in those early years. To hmm. and and for whatever reason, writing has been the thing that has helped me both like preach the gospel back to myself and to connect with God and to connect with other people to use what comes pretty naturally to me to you know find the meaning under the surface of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to create something that is beautiful, yeah. ideally, right? Hopefully, we're right. all eventually <laughs> creating beautiful sentences as we wade through the really bad ones. <laughs> yeah. That's the goal. That's the goal. Are you working on any projects right now? Uh, yes. Are you allowed to talk about them, or are you? Uh, not yet. They're not... still in process. Still... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah. No, but I like I like having bigger projects to work on because it feels, especially hidden projects like book writing or you know long articles. It feels hmm. it feels more substantial that you can say something meaningful. Well, let's get back to the suburbs. Yes. Um, what do you think are some of the main misconceptions that you, as you talked about and even thought about, you know, moving back? What were some of the misconceptions, the fears that proved false when you got there? Or less true. <laughs> or less true, yeah. um, I think, you know, I, I kind of thought that everyone would only be concerned with, you know, the details of life and not care about the depth of life. Hmm. I kind of thought you know, their money would be able to buy them out of pain. And that's definitely not true. But I, I do feel it is harder sometimes to reckon with deeper questions. Um, but I feel like people who are curious about deep soul matters tend to find each other regardless of where they live. You know, we've seen it, it's just easier to hide some of that pain behind picket fences. And so the challenge then is to create enough margin in your schedule and time and heart that you're around when those things um, poke out of the cracks. What is it specifically about suburban life that you would say hinders the, the, the possibility of depth? Well, I think in some ways, you know, suburbia is a created space and obviously every place is a created space, but it was made, you know, especially in America, post-World War II, kind of as this idol between, you know, the this kind of country manor um, existence that's still within striking distance of the city. And so it was supposed to be this kind of almost fairy tale right of that you could have everything right you could have access to the city you could work and but then you could leave all that behind um, and live in this sort of homogenous place where families were you know it's like mad men episode but right. you know um and yet we see in mad men like other places that <laughs> there's a very dark underbelly uh yeah. to uh to when we try to make things look perfect because we're human that things fall apart right are you a twin peaks fan by any chance no i haven't seen it no i, I should i don't i don't recommend it to people because it's it's i mean it's extremely dark but that's the whole Point. theme of that show <laughs> is is you know you have this um this girl who's like the prom queen and she she does meals meals on wheels right. and she's just like sort of the ideal picture of like the suburban you right. know young beautiful girl and she shows up you know in the first five minutes of the show she shows up dead on you right. know, the shoreline of a lake yeah and as they do the as they investigate what happened to her the underbelly of suburban life gets exposed in this profoundly disturbing way right yeah so i think you know the the challenge of of suburban life right is to is to not keep the plasticity um because it's fake, right? And and I think the challenge when our environment looks so beautiful, I mean, we're in a master plan community where they have a company who like does all of the landscaping and the whole thing. Hmm. And so, I mean, that forms you when you're not mowing your own lawn. I mean, we don't have a lawn because it's super expensive <laughs> to have any <laughs> land in Southern California, but... Um, but you know you're not you're not using your hands you're not using your body you're not you know pulling the weeds um, mm -hmm. and that 
misshapes our souls and it can make us think that we're we've got it all figured out and life is good and life should be as easy as you know pushing purchase on Amazon and get your get your package in in two days. It sounds like so much of your journey is, and I don't. I hope this doesn't sound harsh, uh, but <laughs> it's okay. Mo- I can take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, just moving beyond kind of the condescension yeah. of urban life for mm-hmm. sub- suburban life. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I, I think as a as a pastor and you know part of a church plant and part of a pastoral team in the early two thousands, Tim Keller was such a profound yes. influence and. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, gives you this this tremendous love for cities, yep. but it it can turn into an idolatry. Yes. It can turn into something that is. Um, yeah, con- I really I wanted. I, I really yeah. No, I really wanted Tim Keller to endorse my book, and I have some connections with him. And my husband's like, "No, you can't do that." And I was like, "But I think it would be great because I think Tim is all about place, right? And he's about right. it, you know, he's about." the ways in which places form us. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think I was like, that would be super cool to get like the church planting right. urbanist <laughs> extraordinaire. <Right. laughs> but anyway, I didn't do that. But Tim, if you're yeah. listening, you can still tweet it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And if you're listening, Tim, you can come on this podcast. Yes, I'd love to have that'd you. That'd be great. No, but I think, yeah, I think there is this uh, idealized idolization yeah of urban ministry and um unfortunately because i think people like tim keller what they've done wonderfully is how does the gospel shape this place how does it need to respond to this place and how you know what are the what are the kind of seeds of flourishing that are already present in this place um and unfortunately i think those of us who have followed in his footsteps have kind of taken just the the form without the the deeper content you know of of that mm-hmm. idea um so we've said hop on board the city train uh, without right. really recognizing what's going on and that those yeah. are good skills wherever we live well and i think he was talking about he was talking about cities when no one else was right and when i think when evangelicals in in many ways had kind of given up on them as like right. those are liberal cesspools right. and they, they don't want you know, they don't want anything to do with Orthodox Christianity. Correct. Yeah. So um, it was a necessary corrective. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and but, I think your book is a helpful corrective to, you know, the over, the overreach in the other direction. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We need to, we need to, you know, we used to joke um, at, at Sojourn, we used to joke one of our, one of our like, key phrases that we would throw around all the time because we planted downtown, yep. um, which I think we stole from Keller, as a matter of fact, was that we were in the city for the city, right? Yes. That is and then we launched, our, yeah. we, we launched our we launched our first suburban campus and, and you know, had to change it to in the suburbs for the suburbs. <laughs> yep. Um, and it, it took a lot of getting used to. And I think a lot of people, I, like I said, I think your book is a, is a helpful corrective in the conversation because God cares about place. He does. Uh, and yeah. And I think you do a, a great job of drawing out what is beautiful and what is good about mm-hmm. um, about about your place. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately a lot of us just kind of see our place as this kind of 
um, blank slate or, you know, this context to which we need to like create a math equation uh, to, mm -hmm. to be Christ followers in it instead of seeing, instead of seeing, you know, we, we already bring um, so much of who we are is formed by our places and um, it's all kind of intertwined. So how do we kind of begin to unravel some of those strings uh, so that we can look at them clearly so we can appreciate them and be both, you know, not condescending, hopefully, but um, hopefully I'm growing out of that. Um, but but that we can both love our places and be a part of them and to suffer with them uh, in whatever kind of form that that loss takes. Now first he sings and then he goes And what it means it's hard to know Thank you, Ashley, for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash cultivated. This show is a production of Harbor Media and Narrativo. We make podcasts at Narrativo. You can learn more about that at www.narrativogroup.com. This episode was edited and mixed by me. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our music is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.